you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 10. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 19 will be our passage this Lord's Day. If you're with us uh, last week, we looked at chapter 9 and how David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was the crippled son of Jonathan, who was David's, uh, really his closest friend, who had uh, long before then died, and David wanted to show kindness to someone in Jonathan's household. And so this kindness, this loving kindness, we talked about the, the indication there was it's a, a grace and a mercy, it's unmerited, unearned, and he shows that kindness to Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth accepted David's offer of kindness. And David had offered him to restore the land of his grandfather Saul, that family land that was his, that he would restore it to him, that he would give him servants to take care of him and take care of that land. And then he also offered him a place at his table uh, to be treated as a child of the king. And we left off in chapter 9 with that clear picture that Mephibosheth accepted the king's offer. Verse 13 of chapter 9 said, So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. And if you were with us last week, we talked about how, how that's a picture of the gospel, how God offers his grace, his loving kindness towards us, and he invites us in to sit at his table with him. Uh, but we have to respond, we have to accept that offer, and we talked about what happens when we do. And the question before us today is, what happens when we don't? What happens when we don't accept the king's kindness? What happens when we don't accept this offer of grace and mercy that God offers to us? And we see a picture of that what if in chapter 10, because now uh, the king will offer uh, using the same language, kindness to some of his enemies, to the, some of the Ammonites. But unlike Mephibosheth, uh, they don't accept the king's offer. And it doesn't end well for them. So we're going to look at this passage in its entirety, all 19 verses today. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand uh, for the reading of God's word as I read our scripture passage for our sermon today. This is what... We read in 2 Samuel chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants, to sent his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came up into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips, and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And David said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth-Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, 
and the king of Machal with a thousand men, and the men of Tob, twelve thousand men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate, and the Syrians of Zobah and Rahab and the men of Tob and Machah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians. And they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians had fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hediazar sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And he came to Halam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hediazar, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Halam. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of the army, so that he died there. When all the kings who were servants of Hediazar saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. If you would pray with me. Father, in this passage, we have the the history of a military defeat. It is easy for us to casually read over it and just move forward to other places in the Scripture that seem more applicable to us, that seem to have clear lessons for us. And yet, as you tell us in your word, all Scripture is inspired and is profitable, that we might learn from it, that we might be trained by it, that we might grow in righteousness through it. So help us to learn, help us to listen, and help us to obey today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Growing up, one of my favorite things to do was to watch game shows. Many of these game shows are still on TV today. They've often been revamped and revisited and one that's been around since the the 1960s I believe is the show Let's Make a Deal. Uh, It's still on today but the the Let's Make a Deal that that I think about is the one from uh, the 70s and the 80s. It's the one that was hosted by Monty Hall and for those of you who remember the Monty Hall Let's Make a Deal you, you remember those episodes and I loved watching them because he would take somebody from the studio audience uh, and he would give them some type of monetary prize, an envelope, maybe $50, $100, $200. And then he, he would put choices before them. 
And so with one particular guest, he would give them the cash, and he said, well, listen, you, you can go home with $200, or you can take what's behind door number one or door number two. Now, if you watched the show, you knew that behind one of those doors or curtains was probably something really good, something big, something like a, a large screen television or an entertainment center or, or maybe a motorcycle or a car or some extravagant vacation. But then you knew what might also be behind one of those doors would be a pile of rocks, uh, a goat, uh, some chickens, uh, something that would be of far less value than the $200 in their hand. And, and it was a game of chance that they would choose by chance by luck, by risk, whether they were going to hold on to the money or take what was behind the door. And it was very entertaining to watch, this, this game of chance, this game of, of luck and risk. But imagine if we had a scenario like that. Imagine if we were the one who was the contestant, but there was a catch. And the catch was this, we knew what was behind the doors. <laughs> I mean, imagine what it would be to be standing there on this game show to have $200 in your hand, but to know that behind curtain number two was a $200,000 prize. And to know that's what it was. And for everybody else to know that's what it was. The expectation then would be, well, surely you'll take what's behind door number two. I mean, who wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't give up the smaller prize for the much bigger prize? And imagine if you were in that scenario or someone else was, and they didn't do that, how foolish you would think them to be. But before you harp too much on them for making what would seem like a foolish decision, consider the passage before us today. That there's no mystery here, there's no chance here, there's no guessing. We have a king in his kindness offering benevolence to an enemy. And yet, unlike what we saw in chapter 9 with Mephibosheth, this person, this group of people, will not take what's behind door number 2, knowing full well what it is. And the question is, why? Why would they reject the benevolence of the king? Why, why would they reject the kindness of David? Well, that's what we're going to think about and look at as we walk through this passage to get today. And I want to point out uh, three lessons from chapter 10, the first one being this. Number one, do not reject the Lord's kindness. But the very first thing we're hit with in this passage is really a warning. Do not reject the king's kindness. So when you, you read all of this in its context, and we should always read scripture in its context, we see that this flow going out of chapter 7. In chapter 7, God made a covenant with David. In chapter 8, God begins fulfilling that covenant in part in defeating the enemies of David. And then in chapter 9, David is showing the covenant kindness to others that God has shown to him. In that case, to Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth accepts the king's kindness. Then in chapter 10, uh, David goes to share that very same kindness with someone else. Well, now they reject it. Why? Well, we see the context here. In verses 1 and 2, we learn that the king of the Ammonites has died. Now, if you've been following with us, you know that the Ammonites, these aren't allies of the Israelites. These are enemies of the Israelites. And the king who had died, Nahash, he, he was a cruel king. 
In fact, you may recall back in 1 Samuel 11, uh, quite some time ago, but when we were there, Nahash and his army of the Ammonites were the ones who threatened the people of Gabesh Gilead. They had conquered them, they had overthrown them, and the people of Gabesh Gilead came to him and said to Nahash, listen, we want to make a treaty with you. You've obviously beat us, and we want to be at peace with you. And he said, okay, I'll make a treaty with you, but in order to make this treaty, you have to gouge out your right eyes. Now, we talked about this in the context there, why that was a a strategic move for him, that, that with that right eye gone, they couldn't aim, they couldn't fight in battle against him. But it was also an act of utter cruelty. It was something that would just bring great shame on them. And so Nahash was no friend of the Israelites. And in general, the Ammonites were no friend of the Israelites. They had a long history of hostility towards the Israelites. And yet, here we see that when Nahash has died, David offered to show kindness to him. And the scripture says the reason he was showing kindness to him is because Nahash had dealt loyally with him. Now, we don't really have a a cross-reference there. We weren't able to flip to another place in the scripture and say, oh, here clearly is where he did that. And so what's inferred here is that somewhere along the way, Nahash had showed kindness to David. I think the implication would be that it it was likely at some point when David was fleeing from Saul, Nahash was an enemy to Saul, Saul was an enemy to Nahash, and so, you know, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, and in that situation, Nahash probably knew how Saul felt towards David. He's pursuing David, and so he probably, in order to kind of get at Saul, he he showed kindness in some way towards David. Whatever it was, whatever he did, David's now in a situation where God has shown him this steadfast, loving, covenant kindness, and now he wants to show that to the Ammonites, specifically to the son of Nahash, who's passed away, and to his people, to Hanan, his son. And so he, he sends a delegation to Hanan. He sends that delegation to comfort him. And we don't know, again, all the details, but perhaps, I think likely, they probably brought gifts with them. Perhaps they brought some type of word of peace or, or a treaty that could be made, that they could, that they could come into a, a peace arrangement with the Israelites, not be in conflict any longer with the Israelites. It was an act of kindness on David's part. It was an act of benevolence on David's part. I mean, remember the the flow of things. Chapter 7, God's covenant with David. Chapter 8, a summary of the enemies who are conquered. David could have easily looked at Hanun in this moment and said, there's a transition of power, there's a moment of weakness, I'm going to wipe out the Ammonites now. But he doesn't. He shows them mercy. He shows them kindness. And notice the response to that kindness is a response of rejection. The, the princes of the Ammonites come to Hanan and, and they think there's some type of trick here. They, they don't trust the, the act of kindness from David. They, they don't trust his motives on why he's doing this. They, they look at him and say, surely there's a catch. Surely what we think is behind door number two is not what's behind door number two. <laughs> it's really... A pile of rocks is what it is. It's not what it appears to be. They said that David's men were just 
kind of coming as a Trojan horse under this cover of kindness, but, but deep down that they were spies and that they wanted to overthrow the land. I mean, again, why would they react this way? And friend, I think the clear answer as to why they react this way is to why everyone else reacts this way when they reject the kindness of God. It's because of the hardness of their hearts. Their hearts were hardened towards the one true God. Their hearts were hardened towards the kindness of God. Their hearts were hardened towards David and the Israelites. They, they had hard hearts. And they reject this offer of kindness from David for the same reason that people today reject the offer of kindness from God. Because our hearts are hardened towards the things of God. And we need an act of the Holy Spirit in us to awaken us that we might respond in repentance and faith to the, the benevolent free offer of the gospel. And so that hardness that we see in men's hearts today is a hardness that we see in the Ammonites' hearts in 2 Samuel chapter 10. And so notice what they do in their hardened state. They not only reject David's offer, but they do it in a humiliating fashion. They take this delegation that David has sent, these these men that he sent to them, that they shave their beards right down the middle and take half of them off and they cut their garments off at the waist and remove half of them. That might be a fashion trend today. I, I don't know. You know, you, you buy jeans that look like they've gone through a lawnmower and they're all cut up. and People shave all kinds of weird things in their face. That, that might be fashionable today. That, that wasn't fashionable then. It, it, was a, it was a picture of shame. And again, you, you kind of get the bigger picture here of the Ammonites. That it seemed that their goal in defeating their enemies wasn't just to defeat their enemies. It was to humiliate them. Gouge out their eyes. Shave off half their beard. Cut their garments in half below the waist. In their hardened state, they just want to humiliate the Israelites. And so they do that to this delegation, and David hears of it. And notice verse 5, what he does. David covers their shame. (laughs) He doesn't put it on display before all the people. He doesn't allow them even to return home so that people might see that shame. He actually sets them aside for a period of time and says, Listen, stay here until your beards grow back. Stay here. Let, Let me cover your shame. Yeah, that's, that's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? If you're not ashamed of your sin, you should be. And in the garden, we see a picture of shame where Adam and Eve, they, they rebel against God. And immediately, they're, they're covered in shame. And they try to cover their shame in their own way, and it doesn't work. They can only be covered by the benevolence and the kindness of God. And friends, in the same way today, we, we try so many ways to, to cover up our shame, to make excuses for our shame, or we just don't feel the shame we should feel for our sin. But what we desperately need in our shame is the kindness of the king. That's what these men had. So, so David hears of this, he, he covers their shame, he sends them away, and then this word gets back to the Ammonites that obviously David's not very happy with them. <laughs> He's offered this kindness, 
and they've met it with an act of rebellious humiliation towards him. And so the word gets back to them that they had become a stench to David, a stench to him. I mean, think of all ways to describe this. That's how the scripture describes it. They were a stench to him. Sandy and I went on a, a date night last night. We went to Louisville, went out to eat, and on the way home, uh, it was dark. I didn't see it, but I knew within a moment that we had just driven over a dead skunk. That this must be like dead skunk season. You think about that. You probably all experienced that. You drive over that stench, and it starts to fill your car. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, when that happens, say, Mmm, that's some good stuff. Roll the windows down, kids. Let's go back and find it. Maybe we could take it home. Maybe we could put it on display. Maybe we can just sit and take some pictures with it. That's not how we respond, is it? No, it's... I'm going to drive faster now. If you're rolling down the windows, it's to get the stench out of the car. I want to get away from that. I might take a different route next time so I don't go over that because it's a stench. How do we respond to a stench? We are repulsed by it. We don't want to be around it. The response here of the Ammonites is they realize, wait a second, that the kindness of the king was offered. We rejected it. Now we're a stench to him. We repulse him. You would think in that moment, understanding that, there might be some recognition of their need to turn and respond rightly, to beg forgiveness. But that's not what they do. They say, let's go to war. <laughs> that they're going to rally the troops. They're, they're going to be even harder in their hardness of their hearts towards David. They're going to fight. And they're going to go hire a militia to try to take on David and take on his army. And so David sends the commander of his army, Joab, to, to deal with him. And, and here we see a response from Joab that we, we haven't seen in this passage from David or anyone else. We, we see the first mention of God in this passage, the only mention of God. And it comes from Joab, which brings us to that second point there in your outline. This lesson is that we are to have faith in the Lord's providence. Have faith in the Lord's providence. When we speak of God's providence, we're speaking of God's sovereign plan. We're, we're speaking that God, from beginning to end, has his hand on creation in every aspect of it. And he is providentially at work. He is sovereignly at work. He is in control. The question for us in our day-to-day -day lives is, will we trust in his providence? Will we trust in his sovereign plan? Will we trust in him to be in control? Or will we fight for that control ourselves? We're to have faith in the Lord's providence. So Joab and his men go down to battle, the Ammonites, but now we have a military problem. And the problem that's summarized here, and much of this is just a summary of battle, is that Joab takes these mighty men, we don't know how many there are, but the indication is they're outnumbered. And not only are they outnumbered, but the indication is that they are surrounded. And in fact, the description here is that on one side of them is the Ammonites, and on the other side of them is the Syrians. And if you were to draw out this battle as if it were a game of risk, it would appear at this point that Joab's going to lose. 
that he's surrounded by enemies on either side. And Joab comes up with a plan. His plan is to divide his forces. And then in that plan, he says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take some of you, and you're going to fight against the Ammonites on one side, and we're going to take the rest of you, and you're going to fight against the Syrians on the other side. And now here's what we're going to do. If the Ammonites are too much for this group, then y'all just call on the others. They'll come help you. And if the Syrians are too much for this group, then, then, then you just call on the others. They'll come help you. But surely when he announces this plan, someone says to Joab, what if they're both overthrowing us? <laughs> I mean, the assumption here is that only one side's going to be strong. Joab, they outnumber us. They're greater than us. They've surrounded us. What if they are both conquering us at the same time? Who are we going to turn to then, Joab? This picture here is that they have a crisis on one side and a crisis on the other. They have an enemy on one side and an enemy on the other. That they are really just squeezed in the midst of it. It's hard enough to fight one army on one side. How do you fight two? I heard about a man several years ago. Spent his life in ministry. He's a retired pastor. He's dealing with great health problems. He was now battling cancer for the fourth time. This time terminal cancer. The chemotherapy that was being used to prolong his life against this terminal cancer killed his heart. And now he was dying of heart disease and of cancer. And in the midst of that, a friend was checking on him to see how he was coping. And he said this to his friend. It would be nice to have only one terminal illness. That's how life is sometimes, isn't it? If you haven't learned this by now, don't ever say it can't get worse. <laughs> because it can, and it so often does. So often there's, there's a crisis before us that it seems is going to overwhelm and overtake us, and we turn around only to see a greater crisis behind us. Suffering met with suffering. Crisis met with crisis. At times, it's when we're the most overwhelmed that everything else then falls apart. And friends, that's, that's a picture that we see throughout the Scripture, isn't it? I mean, not just here in 2 Samuel 10, where Joab's army is surrounded by enemies. I mean, you think about the picture we see of the, the Hebrews, the Israelites. I mean, centuries of slavery. Centuries of hardship and of suffering. That we in this room, we, we can't even begin to imagine. And then God rescues them and he's taking them to the promised land. And they come to what seems to be a dead end road by the Red Sea. And there they are. They, they can't go any farther. They have to stop. There's this barrier between them and the promised land. And in that moment, they turn around and here comes their former captors. Here comes the Egyptians, the army, waiting to drag them back into slavery. And there they are between a rock and a hard place, like so many of us often find ourselves. And in these moments, we, I think, like David's men here, we, we are tempted to be afraid and to be overwhelmed by fear and anxiety and worry. And what we need 
is the reminder that Joab gives. Verse 12, Joab says this, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Now, if Joab went through a modern day leadership motivational course, he would have said something different than this. We would have expected Joab to say, let's just have faith. And if we have enough faith, God is going to wipe these armies out in front of us. So just, just trust the Lord and he'll destroy your enemies. That's not what he says. He doesn't give any indication in any way that God has promised or guaranteed victory because God had not done that. He doesn't inflate some promise of God that's not there. He doesn't say, now listen guys, I know the odds are stacked against us, but you got to remember, remember, remember those t-shirts we ordered, you know, God plus one equals a majority. I mean, we're going to be okay today. God's going to take care of us. He makes no indication that they're going to be okay. He just says, be of good courage and let us be courageous. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. He says to them, we're going to trust in the providence of God. Whatever may come. And if it seems good to the Lord for us to be killed by the Syrians, we'll be killed by the Syrians. And if it seems good to the Lord for us to be killed by the Ammonites, we'll be killed by the Ammonites. And if it seems good to the Lord for us to be killed by one and by the other and by both of them be trampled on, then that's what's going to happen. Be of good courage. The Lord's will be done. See, friends, trusting in the providence of God is not the same as believing everything's always going to work out in a perfect way and nothing wrong is ever going to happen to us. Trusting in the providence of God means whatever may come, we're still trusting in the Lord's will that it will be done. In fact, when you consider what Joab says here, it sounds very similar to what Jesus says, doesn't it? In Matthew chapter 6, the disciples want to know how to pray. Teach us how to pray, Lord, and Jesus teaches them. And in that prayer, what does he say in Matthew 6.10? When we're to pray, we're to pray to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus says, what you need to pray is that the Lord does what seems good to him. And then Jesus, he models that very thing, doesn't he? As he not only has crisis on one side, Christ on the other, he, he is surrounded by it, and he is overwhelmed, as he should have been, with the knowledge of what's coming on the cross. And he bows his knee to the Father. And he asks if there's any other way for it to work, that it would work some other way. But what does he pray in Matthew 26, 39? My Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He says, Father, may, may you do what seems good to you. That, I mean, this is the heart of this passage. That this, this brings us really to a, to a fundamental 
point in our faith where we have to ask ourselves the question, when what seems good to us is not the same as what seems good to God, how will we respond? When, when God's will is not what our will is, how will we respond? Will we truly pray, thy will be done, or will we just give that lip service but live, my will be done? How will we respond in those moments? Well, Joab gives us a picture and a lesson that we're to trust in the providence of God. And here it's important to understand, he has no idea how this is going to turn out. And friends, we don't know either, do we? I, I have no idea what's coming tomorrow. I have no idea what's coming next week or the next month. I have no idea what crisis is going to befall many of you in your families or befall me and my family. I have no idea who's going to be gathered here together with us six weeks from now, six months from now, six years from now. I don't know and you don't know. We don't know the, the what and the when and the how and the why. But if we are trusting in Jesus today, we know the who. And that's the most important thing. Because if we know the who, if we know the Father, then we know that the Father's will will be done. And that God is sovereignly at work working out His plan. And then our response that we are called to is one of trust and submission, to trust in the Father and to trust in His will. And that He will work out His will in His ways. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. But we have to remember that that good in that passage is the good in this passage. It's what seems good to him. Will we trust in what seems good to him? Don't reject his kindness. Have faith in his providence. And the third lesson for us, point three. Trust in the Lord for salvation. You, you can even write another word in there. Trust in the Lord alone for salvation. So Joab trusts that the, that the Lord's will be done, that the Lord will do what seems good to him. And fortunately for Joab and for the men, what seemed good to the Lord that day was for them to walk out of their life. What seemed good to the Lord that day was for their enemies to flee before them, and that's what happens. So they're surrounded by their enemies, but the Syrians, they flee. And the Ammonites see the Syrians flee, and then the Ammonites flee. But the battle's not over at that point. That the Syrians flee, but they go and they gather reinforcements. Now, remember at this point, the Syrians were the hired hands. They were the hired militia. They were paid to be there. But it seems, again, their hearts are hardened as well. So they, they gather reinforcements. They're going to go back to battle. David hears about it. This time, David goes with his army into battle. And David and his army utterly defeat them. They, they just defeat them. So that the... The Syrians here in their defeat, they become subject to the Israelites. They, they serve the Israelites. 
verse 19 says, So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. That's the conclusion. That's, That's the footnote on this passage. At the end of all this, that the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Now, two, two quick observations about that that come to mind. The first is, the Syrians didn't save the Ammonites. <laughs> you know, the, the way it reads is like, well, they did it this time, but they're not going to do it again. No, they tried and they failed. And, and I think that's what the, the writer of this verse is trying to communicate to us, is, it's not so much that they had tried and succeeded, it's that they tried and failed and they learned in their failure, well, we're never going to do that again. <laughs> we're, we're not going to go against the armies of God and try to save the Ammonites because that's not going to work. It didn't work. It won't work. But, but the other thing that comes to mind is what a, what a fruitless attempt it was in the first place for the Ammonites to trust the Syrians to save them. I mean, how fruitless that was. I mean, again, look at the context. The Ammonites are offered kindness by the king. They reject it. And we'll learn ultimately what happens to them at the end of chapter 12, but I'll just say for now, it doesn't end well. But it could have ended much better. If they had just accepted the kindness of the king, if they accepted the king's pardon and kindness and grace and mercy, while there was still time, it would have ended much differently for them. But they looked somewhere else for salvation. They looked to the Syrians. And that got them nowhere. They failed. And friends, the same thing happens to us when we trust in someone or something else to save us other than Jesus. So be warned this morning. Be warned. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. Here's the warning. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, we might be able to fool everybody else in the world, but we cannot fool our sovereign creator God who knows our heart. And if we are presuming this morning on his kindness, meaning we are neglecting to accept it, and respond in complete and total repentance and faith and trust in Jesus, if we are making excuse after excuse after excuse for our sin, rather than turn from it and trust in Jesus, be warned. We are presuming on the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God. But our judgment is coming. Jesus has made a tremendous offer to us, just as David made a tremendous offer to the Ammonites. And he has said to us, if we will confess him as Lord and believe in our hearts that he raised from the dead, that we'll be saved. He he has said to us, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone 
hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We know what's behind door number two. The question is, will we respond to what we know in repentance and faith? Will we trust in Jesus today? That's the call this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day. So if you'll stand together with me as we respond to that call through prayer and worship and by God's grace through repentance and faith. You pray with me. Father God, we thank you for the offer of kindness. It is by your kindness and your goodness and your grace that we can be here in this place today. Left to our own devices, Lord, we would not be here. But we're here because you have shown us kindness and mercy and grace. Father, help us now through the power of your Holy Spirit not to have hearts that are hardened towards that kindness. But to have hearts that respond to that kindness and repentance and faith. May Christ be Lord of our lives today and every day we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. And church, family, and guests, we're going to respond now to God's word by worshiping and singing about the great faithfulness that God offers us, the kindness, the loving kindness and mercy. And as we worship and as we sing, we invite you to sing, to respond that way, to worship. We invite you to come as God leads to come if he's leading you to come and confess Christ as your Lord, to take that next step in obedience and baptism, to start the process of joining this church family, or if you just need someone to pray with you, I'm here, others are available as well. And so let's respond as the Lord leads. Let's lift our voices and sing as we remember the great faithfulness of God and as we respond to his word. Mm-hmm.